first psalm. Uh, We're in a series called uh, Psalms, the Rhythm and Practice of Prayer during the season of Lent, and we're learning, uh, according to God's Word, how to pray. Uh, Martin Luther once said that as it's the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Uh, and, and, and indeed it is, but, but we often struggle with knowing how to pray. Uh, I don't think there is a Christian among us who uh, hasn't struggled in their pursuit of having a deep prayer life. And this can be for a number of reasons. We may struggle with prayer because we're weak, because of sin, because of lack of experience, because of something else. Uh, but the good news is that God knows this and he has graciously given us a book to learn how to pray. Uh, he's, he's given us a book to teach us how to avail ourselves to this wonderful privilege and this, uh, this God-given duty to be a people of prayer. The Psalms is a book of songs and prayers uh, meant to, to uh, sort of be a, a hymn book or a prayer book for God's people. They teach us how to pray. Uh, sometimes you, you want to pray, you're just not sure what you are supposed to say. And the Psalms are God's words that he puts in our mouths to speak back to him. And we've done that this morning in our, in our singing. We sang Psalm 51 for our song of confession. Only your blood is enough to cover my sin. We sang Psalm 13 during our time of lament. And uh, during the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the practice of prayer and, and gleaning uh, how to pray according to the Psalms. We've been looking at the rhythm of prayer thus far, uh, sort of how to schedule your prayer life and, and how you begin to pray. And uh, now we're going to take a turn to uh, learn about the practice of prayer. What do we say to God when we come to him in prayer? Uh, And there are actually a number of different types of prayer uh, that that we won't be getting into during this season just for the sake of time. Uh, We can pray prayers of praise and adoration and thanksgiving and and, and, and all sorts of things. But uh, during this season, we're we're particularly just focusing in on uh, praying as confession, praying as lament, praying as thanksgiving, um, confessing uh, our sins in prayer, lamenting and mourning to God in prayer and giving thanks to God in prayer. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing over the next three Sundays. And this morning, we're starting with bringing our sins to God in prayer, and that's called confession. And we do this every Sunday. We, we take time to pray a prayer of confession and bring our sins to God and ask for his forgiveness. And, and, and confession, uh, what confession is, is it's, it's uh, the, the shape that prayer takes when someone is repentant. Uh, confession is the shape that, that prayer takes when someone is repenting, when they are turning away from sin and, and, and asking God to forgive them. Uh, confession is, is the shape that prayer takes when that's taking place in someone's heart. And that's what we see taking place here in Psalm 51. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read all of Psalm 51. And, uh, and we'll pray and seek to expose this text and what it says. Starting from the top, let's listen with reverence and joy. This is the voice of our God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, there's not one of us in this room who does not have sin. And so, there's not one of us in this room that is not in need of confession and repentance. And so, would you Teach us now, as we look at Psalm 51. And not just teach us in order to inform our intellect so that we can regurgitate specific facts about praying and confession and the like, uh, but, but would you teach us wisdom in the secret heart? Would you pierce our hearts with the truth that we have sinned against you, That it's you against you and you alone that we have sinned. And would you draw us then, draw us near to yourself in confession, freely confessing our sins to you, knowing that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. Would you give us assurance of that this morning? Lord, I also recognize... there are some in this room who have not truly confessed their sins in a very, very long time, but who presume upon your grace. 
who don't see their sin as significant because they don't see you as significant. Would you grant repentance this morning? Would you bring us to yourself, Lord? Would you draw us to yourself in the power of your word, through the power of your spirit? We trust you, so would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? You are our rock and our redeemer, Lord. We need you. We trust you this morning. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see from the title of this psalm, there's a specific story that led uh, to this sin-confessing, grace-pleading prayer that we find in Psalm 51. And that story is the story of uh, David, the king of Israel, Uh, Bathsheba, Uriah, and the prophet Nathan. We find it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, One night, David gets up from his couch, and uh, he goes up to his roof. And and 2 Samuel 11.1 tells us that it's the springtime of the year, and so the weather's probably pristine. He's probably hoping to get out and shake off some of those winter cobwebs, if you know what I mean, and enjoy the weather on this nice, leisurely stroll on his roof. And now taking a stroll on your roof uh, uh, to enjoy uh, your kingdom, if you're a king, might seem like a perfectly fine thing for David to do. Uh, But in all reality, David should not have been there. Uh, I I mentioned that it was the springtime of the year, which according to 2 Samuel 11.1 was actually the time of the year that kings were to go out with their armies into battle. But instead, David remained in Jerusalem, revealing to us Not just where David was, but where David should have been. He should have been with his army, with his men who were sweating and bleeding and losing limbs and losing lives in battles that he waged. It was his duty to lead his army into battle, but instead he remained in Jerusalem. Which we would have to assume is, is maybe an act of cowardice or just laziness. And while David is in Jerusalem and on his roof, taking this leisurely stroll while his men are sacrificing and fighting for him, he sees a woman bathing on the roof of a house across the way. And uh, it it just starts with seeing her, which is fine. You can't help what your eyes come across. Uh, But he doesn't just see her. David starts to stare at her, which turns into David gazing at her, which turns into David ogling her. And that lust begins to, to take shape in the form of certain pursuits and actions. He, he calls someone over. Who, who's that woman over there? David is then told that she is Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is a soldier off fighting in battle in David's army. And in 2 Samuel eleven four 4 says this. It says, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Sometime later, Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant. And David commences this great cover-up. At first, he has Uriah sent back to Jerusalem. And he pretends that it's just to hear updates about the battle and, and, and get all the necessary updates. And after Uriah's visit, he sends Uriah home. He says, go home and be with your wife. Hoping that they might enjoy one another and, and cover up the fact that the child in Bathsheba is David's. But the problem is, is Uriah is so loyal. He so longs to be back with his men. His, his bravery, his loyalty should shame David. 
Instead of going home with his, to be with his wife, Uriah sleeps on David's doorstep all night. He refuses to take comfort and pleasure while his comrades are off fighting and dying. And so David tries again the next night, and this time getting Uriah drunk so that he might be more likely to go home and be with his wife. But again, Uriah does not go home. And so David then, all out of ideas, composes a letter to Uriah's superior, Joab. Joab is off fighting in battle, and so he sends it back to Joab, this message to Joab through Uriah, telling Joab to send Uriah to the front of the battle and have all the other men then pull back so that Uriah is left unprotected so that he may be killed. And David gets a message back a short time later, letting him know that the deed had been done. So David takes Bathsheba as his wife and continues on as if nothing had ever happened. Lying, murder, lust, adultery, cowardice, laziness. And chapter 11 closes with telling us that that this greatly displeased the Lord, leading us to believe that I I don't think the Lord is going to let David get away with this. And he doesn't. So he sends, God sends his prophet Nathan Nathan is the prophet in Israel during this time, and and he is the one who bears the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And so Nathan comes to David with a story, and it's a parable, really. This is what he says. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock from his herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's response to this story is ironic. It says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David cries out for justice, for for vengeance to be visited upon such a vicious man who had committed such a repulsive act. And then Nathan's words Come down on David with the full authority of heaven. He says, you are the man. He confronts David. You are the man. You are the wicked, repulsive, vicious man who has done such a horrible, wicked thing. You are the one who has done this wicked thing, David. And then David does the only right thing we do. We see him do in this whole situation. David, in grief and conviction and anguish and the anguish of his soul, He says, I have sinned against the Lord. David knows that he has sinned. He knows that he deserves judgment. He knows that he deserves death now. He knows that he deserves eternal condemnation from the judge of heaven and earth. And so he confesses his sins to the Lord and he seeks forgiveness. That's what we see in Psalm 51. And like David, if if you're a Christian here this morning, like David, you've come to the realization that you, like David, you are the man or you are the woman who deserves such condemnation. You too are worthy of the same condemnation as David. We read about David's sin here and we find it repulsive and it is, it's disgusting. But we're no better. 
And the first John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like David, we deserve God's righteous judgment. We're guilty. We have rebelled against God. But like he did with David and his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love, the Lord invites us to come to him as broken sinners to confess our sins and receive his grace. And if we do, then we have this wonderful promise found in 1 John 1, 9. We just read 1 John 1, 8. In 1 John 1, 9, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession is, is the condition for receiving that wonderful promise here. Notice that. Confessions of sin is absolutely necessary for us as followers of Jesus. And so that's what we see David doing in this psalm. The psalm was penned so that coming in all the coming generations of God's people, David's confession of sin would be a lesson for us to do the same. Verse 13 shows us that this psalm is meant to teach us. And what it teaches us is this, that God calls, God calls us to come to him as broken sinners to confess our sins and receive his grace. We'll unpack that by looking first at what confession is and what confession includes what confession is and what it includes. And as we look at what confession is in verses 1 to 12, we see that confession is is approaching God, acknowledging guilt, and asking for grace. And, And as we see what confessing includes in verses 13 to 19, we see that confession includes contrition and then leads to commissioned living. First, what confession is. Confession begins with approaching God. Uh, Sometimes people wonder why we confess our sins to God as Christians. Uh, You may be thinking, you know, yes, sometimes I I, I wrong other people. I do horrible things to to other people. but, But what does that have to do with God? Why do I need to bring God into the picture? Well, according to the Bible's definition of sin, all sin is fundamentally lawlessness. All sin, whether it's us doing something that we're not supposed to do or us not doing something that we're supposed to do, is lawlessness. Uh, We see that in in words uh, used to describe sin here in Psalm 51. Words like transgression and iniquity. Sin means to transgress a certain standard, to violate a certain law. It means to trespass into a certain domain that we have no right to be in. It means to commit a certain iniquity which is to say uh, to commit a gross injustice or violate a certain duty. And what words like iniquity and transgression reveal to us is that there is an ultimate standard that we fail to attain to as human beings. And this ultimate standard is none other than God's law. Therefore, even if our sins are committed against uh, one of our neighbors, one of our fellow human beings, they are ultimately against God because God is our creator has designed us for a certain purpose. And he's given us his law, revealing what he expects of us. So for example, God has told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we therefore in any way commit an act of hate or unkindness to a fellow human being, we have transgressed God's law. We've sinned against them to be sure, but we have transgressed God's law. He is the primary party of offense. And this is why we read in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that David says, I've sinned against the Lord when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he says something similar here in Psalm 51, 4. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, how can David say that? I mean, we just heard the story. David sinned against Uriah. 
David sinned against Joab. David sinned against his army. David sinned against his family. David sinned against his people. Most of all, David sinned against Bathsheba. How can he now say, against you and you only have I sinned? David knows that any and all sin committed in our lives is ultimately against God. We and, and all the people that we interact with have been created by God. Everything we set our eyes on in life has been created by God. Your, your spouse, your children, your, 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 your co-workers and neighbors and friends are all God's creatures and image bearers. Your, your, your house that you live in, your, 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 your yard that your house is in, your trees in your yard are God's trees. Everything that you see, everything that you set your eyes on belongs to God. And therefore, he has the right to tell you how to live in this world, how to treat others, and how to use the things that you've been given by him. And what this means is, is that whenever you sin against someone in your life, whenever you misuse those things that God has created and, and, and owns, you're ultimately sinning against God himself. He is the one that created you. He is the one that designed you to live and exist for a particular purpose. And when you thwart that purpose, when you forsake that purpose for which he designed you in any way, you're committing cosmic treason against the God and the King who created you in the first place. We are ultimately answerable only to him. He is the one that we are ultimately accountable to. Therefore, he is the one that you are called to approach with your sins. That's why confession begins with approaching God. David knows that while he sinned against others in some very significant ways, because of who God is and because of his infinite worth, his biggest problem is that his sin has dishonored and offended God. It is necessary, therefore, for David to approach God in confession. Similar to when I sin against my wife, I'm not going to go apologize and ask for forgiveness to some rando on the street. I go to my wife and I ask for her forgiveness and I confess my sin to her. And because of who God is as our creator, because of who he is and his holiness and his purity, because he has created us for a specific purpose and because sin is ultimately a violation of that purpose. Whenever we sin, he is the primary one we approach. When we sin against others, we confess to them and ask their forgiveness, yes, but God is the primary one we're called to approach in confession. And so we approach God. And when we approach God, we're to acknowledge our guilt to him. Every healthy relationship thrives on honesty. And our relationship with God is no different. We come to him in honesty, acknowledging our guilt before him. David does this. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice, this is the exact opposite of what we saw David do in 2 Samuel. At first, he he was seeking to cover his tracks, to minimize his sin, to sweep it under the rug. But but here, he openly acknowledges his sin and guilt. You know, there's a direct connection between one's view of God and one's view of their sin. If one's view of God is small, their their view of their sin is also small. If God is insignificant in the heart of a person, then they will inevitably see their sin as insignificant. But if God has been magnified in their heart, like it was when Nathan confronted David, if God is magnified in one's heart, then they will not seek to minimize their sin and simply sweep it under the rug. 
Like, sin is not just a few mistakes that we've made. Sin is is not just a few short-sighted missteps, a few blunders here or there. We we see this often. You know, I'm not perfect. I've made a few mistakes. That's not what sin is. Sin is not a few mistakes we've made. Sin is cosmic treason against the one true king and sovereign of the cosmos. No matter how seemingly insignificant, every sin is an act of rebellion and treason against our creator and redeemer. Sin is transgression against God and his law. And because David is aware of this now, his sin is ever before him. He is feeling the weight of his conviction on his heart. He's feeling the weight of his guilt and shame because of what he did. And not only that, not not only because of what he did. Understand, sin is not just the things that we do. Sin is a part of who we are. Sin is also our condition, our nature. And David says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So to be clear, David's not speaking against his mother or the process of conception here. He's talking about what we often refer to as, as the doctrine of original sin. David is saying that we are all born with a sinful, corrupt nature. We are born as rebels against God. We are not born pure or or neutral, left with a choice to be good or bad. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, all of humanity continues to be born corrupt, impure, rebelling against God from our very beginning. This means that we sin because we're sinners. Those sins that we commit, we commit those sins because we are by nature sinners. We sin because by nature we are corrupt and our hearts are wicked. And we simply do the things that we want to do as corrupt, wicked people. Probably one of the most profound reflections on this comes from uh, an ancient African Christian pastor named Augustine. In his book, Confessions, he, he reflects on this story from his youth and at the time of his writing, he's probably about 40 years old, uh, and he's refle- he'd become a Christian just several years prior, and he's, he's reflecting on this, at this occasion when, when he was younger, when he and some friends had stolen some pears from a nearby farmer. And he begins by saying this. He says, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. It wasn't attractive in either color or taste. And yet late at night, we made our way to this pear tree, having devised a plan to shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears. We carried off a huge load of pears. And we didn't even eat them ourselves. We threw them all to the pigs after eating just a few bites. And as Augustine is is confessing this and, and, and reflecting on this, he goes on to say this, Our pleasure was not in eating them, but simply in doing wrong. Such was my heart, O God. Such was my heart. I had no motive for the wickedness, but the wickedness itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall. Not the object for which I had fallen, but the fall itself. My depraved soul leaped down from the firmament to ruin I was not seeking to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. You see, what what Augustine 
is acknowledging as he writes this, and what David is acknowledging in in Psalm 51 is that these wretched sins that they committed, they're not one-offs. They're both saying of themselves, it's it's not that I'm mostly a good guy that did a bad thing. These, these, These things, the lust, the lies, the adultery, the assassination, the theft, the transgressions, these are consistent with my character. There's no health in me. These these acts are consistent with what is within my heart. And apart from God's grace, the same is true of each one of us. And and, and I, I know that this is a hard truth. We like to think of ourselves as decent, moral people. But in the same way that, that a surgeon cuts to heal, God, when he, when he tells us that we're sinners, he's doing so for our good. And so I want to boldly set before you this morning that the, the, the sins that we commit are consistent with what is within our hearts. We do bad things because we're bad people. We sin because we're sinners. There's, there's no such thing as someone who has a good heart but does bad things. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, from the heart, out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. David's sins of adultery and murder and the like were in his heart long before they were done through his hands. Augustine's sin of theft was done because he loved sin and wickedness, not pears. And you and I were just like David, we're just like Augustine. Our hearts are corrupt and depraved. We're rebels against the one true and good and gracious king. Our sin, listen, your sin is not your parents' fault. Your sin is not your spouse's fault. Your sin is not your children's fault or your co-worker's fault or your boss's fault. Your sin is not the fault of your circumstances or situations in life. Those things, those people are merely drawing out what is already within you. And so when we come to God in our sin, we don't blame shift, we don't minimize, we don't offer excuses. We come to him acknowledging our guilt and asking for grace. Because of who God is and his Holy character is our creator. And because of the depths of our depravity and guilt, we ask the Lord for grace. And look at all the ways that David does this in Psalm 51. Verse 1, he says, have mercy, blot out my sins. Verse 2, he says, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 6, teach me. Verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Verses 10, 11, 12, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. There's a lot in there, and time won't permit us to walk through each one of these pleas for grace, but we'll begin just looking at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David asks for mercy and for God to blot out his transgressions, which is a far cry from what we see David say at first in 2 Samuel 12. 
At first, David was crying out for justice. In response to to Nathan's story, though, David says, uh, surely this man deserves to die. You know, it's, it's easy to want justice. It's easy to want fairness when it's someone else's sin, when someone else has done wrong. But here, David doesn't ask for justice. He doesn't ask for fairness. That would mean David being judged and condemned. And so he doesn't ask for justice. He doesn't ask for fairness. He doesn't ask God, just be fair with me. I'm not asking for much. Just please be fair with me. He asks for mercy. And notice the basis on which he asks for mercy. He asks God for mercy according to his steadfast love. Now, if you read the Psalms much, you, you, you see this phrase used fairly often. We've seen it several times this morning already as we've looked at Psalms and prayed through Psalms and, and sang Psalms. We see this phrase, steadfast love, again and again and again in the Psalms. And these two words, steadfast love, are translating one word, and it's a word that means the kind of love that is based on a covenant. The kind of love that is based on a most certain promise from God. It's, 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 it's love that's based on God's previously stated promises and commitments to his people. He's asking God to, to act consistently now with the character that he's revealed and the promises he's pronounced in his word. He's saying, you're a God who has covenanted with us and promised to forgive those who are penitent. I'm asking you right now to fulfill that. I'm I'm asking you to be the God you promised to be. The God you promised to be in in Exodus 34, 6. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I'm asking you to keep your very own promises here. And not only that, but he asks God to have mercy on him according to the, uh, according to, on the basis of his abundant mercy. Here he's, he's appealing to God's tender warmth and welcome. He's saying, I'm asking you for mercy based on the fact that you are a God whose heart yearns for his people. You are a God who is tender in compassion and warm in affection. And so he is. He he is a bottomless well of love and mercy. Our sins, as, as great as they are, they're but grains of sand next to the mountains of his mercy and grace. His love knows no bounds. No, no one can plunge its depths or soar its heights. As one of my favorite hymns puts it, could we with ink the ocean fill or were the sky of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry nor could a scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. And so what this is telling us is that we don't need to wonder if we come to God in confession if he will forgive us. We don't need to wonder if he will. His covenant and his character revealed in his word gives us assurance that he will. And how much more assurance do we have on this, on this side of the coming of Jesus, who is the flawless uh, revelation and representation of God? In Jesus, God not only told us that he loves us and forgives us, he has shown us that he loves us and forgives us. As Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
that steadfast love, that abundant mercy is put on full display in the cross of Jesus. While you were still in your sins, while you were still rebelling against God, while you were a hater of God, God loved you and Christ died to forgive all of your sin. Christ took that sin. He he became that sin for you. And he took it to the cross so that your sin would no longer condemn you. He became that which condemned you and was condemned so that you would be forever welcome and accepted by God. And so we approach God, we, we, we approach him not only because we're finally accountable and answerable to him, which we are, but we approach God also because he's the kind of God that we can approach with our sin. He's the kind of God that invites us to come to him. He's the God that invites us, he beckons us, come to me and release your sins to me and let me, let me love you. And so we acknowledge our guilt to him. We acknowledge our guilt freely. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He, he came for those who, not, the, the, not those who are well. Those who are well don't need a physician. He came for the sick. Jesus came for, not for the righteous, but for sinners and to call them to repentance. And so we acknowledge our guilt and we ask for grace. And when we confess our sin and ask for grace, 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will most certainly forgive, and he has proved it in Jesus Christ. Whether you're doing this for the first time as a new believer or for the 10,000th time as a seasoned believer, God welcomes you. He's not keeping tabs on you. He's not going, no, you know, too many times. You've confessed that one too many times. That's it. I've got to tell you. That's enough. No more. No, when, when, when you come to him in confession, he gets up and he runs to you like the father of the prodigal son. And he, and he embraces you and he welcomes you and he kisses your cheek and he gives you the best robe and he, and he slays the best fatted calf and he gives you the ring and he says, you're my child and you are at home with me. You're always welcome here. I'm always going to embrace you. I love you and I'm for you and nothing will ever change that. That's the kind of welcome we receive when we come to God to confess our sins. We receive his grace. We receive his welcome like the prodigal son coming back to his estranged father. Now let's briefly conclude by looking at what confession includes. We'll do this really quickly because we've gone very long. The first true confession is always accompanied by contrition. Verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So as we confess our sins to God, I I, I want us to understand true confession is never a mere formality. Okay, so some of us in this room, we come to church, we join in the general confession. We may even say that we're sorry for our sins in our prayers, but our words are hollow. Confession is mo- nothing more than a formality to us because there's no contrition. Contrition means that there's, that there's sorrow for our sin. It means that there's genuine remorse. There's sincere remorse for the sins that we are verbally confessing. The word literally means, contrition literally means to be crushed, to be broken, It's what Jesus was getting at when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way to to the blessedness of forgiveness is through the brokenness of your sin. Are you broken over your sin? Do you hate your sin? That which crucified your savior. 
That which dishonors and defies your creator. True confession always includes contrition. It always includes brokenness. It always includes sincere remorse. And second, true confession of sin always leads to commissioned living. Verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And so as David receives forgiveness and assurance, he is strengthened to turn and to teach others to come to God in contrition and confession. This is is always the logical climax of confession. As those who have received forgiveness and grace and deliverance, we in turn open our mouths to tell others about what we found. Like beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Like someone who is thirsty, but who has found an endless abundance of water that goes and tells others where to find this water. We tell others where to find this grace. Like the blind man that Jesus heals in John 9. He's blind his entire life, spends his entire life unable to see. Jesus heals him, and when Jesus heals him, the man cannot shut up about it. He just goes off telling everybody in the street, his parents, the Pharisees, telling everyone about the healing that Jesus had, uh, had performed for him. And understandably so. It's the same for those who have received God's grace and forgiveness. When you're healed of your brokenness, When you're washed clean of your guilt and your shame, you can't keep it to yourself. You teach others. Your tongue is loosed and it sings of God's righteousness. Your lips are opened and you declare God's praise. True confession always leads to to commissioned living. And so in a few moments now, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then you're going to be sent out into your various stations in life. You're going to be sent back out to be mothers and fathers, to be managers and students and, and doctors and salesmen and women and, and tradesmen and women and more. But before we're sent, we're going to, we're going to celebrate and receive the Lord's Supper. We're going, to, we're, we're going to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. We are going to remember that his blood was poured out for us, that his, his blood was shed for us and for our salvation. And at Veritas, we believe that this meal is a real means of grace. We believe that, that uh, Christ himself is present to us spiritually uh, as we celebrate this meal and as we partake together. That he strengthens us and grows us to be more like himself. And he strengthens us for commissioned living as we behold Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us and as we partake of this meal We are formed more and more to be the kind of people who go out to be broken and poured out for the sake of the world, for for our families and for our neighbors and coworkers and for our friends and, 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 and neighbors. We're sent out to declare and to embody the good news that you've heard and celebrated this morning. As those who freely received, we are sent out to freely give. As those who have been forgiven, we go out to forgive. As those who have been reconciled, we go out to be agents of reconciliation. So that's what's going to take place in a few moments. But let me pray before we do, and then Dan's going to come up, and he's going to administer the Lord's Supper for us, and we'll partake and sing and pray and be sent. Let's pray. Father, 
we look to you as the God who liberally provides for his children. We look to you as the God who, who opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. And, and we come to you now wanting to commune with you, to, to, to enjoy this meal with you. And so we ask that that you would be present in this meal to us, that your son would be present in this meal to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that through it you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen us to be a people who go out fully assured of our forgiveness, fully confident in our forgiveness, that we are sent out, to commissioned out to be a people who are broken and poured out for the sake of the world that we offer our lives up as a living sacrifice on your altar and also pour ourselves out as a drink offering for our neighbors. Would you build us up, strengthen us, sanctify us, form us, and reform us now so that as we're sent out, we would be that kind of people. Would you seal this word upon our hearts? Would you cause us to be a people of confession? and a people who are commissioned in Jesus' name. Amen.